Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. As an athlete, Mike Powell won the 1994 State Wrestling Championship for Oak Park River Forest High School. He continued his career at Indiana University where he earned All-America honors in 1996. He took the reins as head coach of his alma mater in 2005, and in his decade of coaching, led the Huskies to two dual-team state championships, a dual-team runner-up finish, a total of six appearances in the dual-team state finals tournament, and top team scores at the individual state wrestling tournament four times. He coached 10 individual state champions and 31 all-state wrestlers. His overall dual meet record was 213 and 44. With Mike at the helm, the OPRF wrestling program was elevated to national prominence and won national championships after being ranked first in the nation in 2014 and 2015. As executive director of the Chicago chapter of Beat the Streets, he has now fully turned his attention to helping young people achieve their highest potential through wrestling. Beat the Streets uses wrestling to build character, discipline, and self-esteem in the city's youth. Find out more at btschicago.org. If you can't tell from the interview, Mike is as passionate, driven, and focused as just about anyone I've met. It takes an exceptional guy to accomplish the exceptional things that Mike has as a coach, and I think we can all learn a lot from today's podcast. To find out more about the Good Athlete Project, find us on social media at Coach the Number Four Kindness. That's Coach for Kindness, or at GoodAthleteProject.com. Okay, so the the landscape of youth sports, and this is like it's filtering into wrestling now, is you pay a coach enough money, he's a professional coach now. No, these aren't volunteers anymore, right? These AYSO soccer coaches, the baseball coaches, they're professionals, and they tell you, your kid is awesome. Give me $2,000, I'm going to take around the country, we're going to play baseball. Right. Every kid plays travel ball. When I was right. a kid, if you made the travel team, that means you, rep, you were the best kid from your team in your village right. you know what i mean there was a handful of guys picked and the coaches didn't make money they were dads you yeah. know or you know neighborhood guys right and they for them a lot of them are now but a lot of them are, these guys are being paid and it's just kind of the way it's gone it's trouble so a lot of these kids walk come into the high school and think they're going to be star baseball pitchers mm-hmm. and they didn't realize the league they were playing in was the jv league right you know what i mean and then next thing you know like i thought you were a pitcher i mean one of our bet one of our a starter on our national championship team came, his brother came into high school and thought he was the best pitcher in Oak Park mm-hmm. and, and didn't pitch for the freshman team. Wow. You know what I mean? Like yeah. somebody yeah, had yeah. been feeding these guys a bunch of baloney and it was nothing against that kid. He ended up being no. a really good wrestler. His brother ended up being a better wrestler. But, um, you know, they thought they were baseball players until, and now this kid's a college, this guy's a, be the captain of his college team this year. Is that right? Yeah, the little brother. Will be, sure. What college is he at? Uh, well, that's a long story that probably shouldn't be on the podcast. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I like it though. Um, well, you bring up a really interesting point. Uh, so much of the Good Athlete Project is rooted in like the actual neurocorrelates of human behavior, like with, and with, at risk of sounding like over the top, like what actually makes people tick? What actually moves people? And what you're talking about is almost like hacking that system. So you've got these guys, we've changed the incentive. You pay to send your kid to a guy who's paying his rent by way of your kid. Right. And, and he cannot afford to have the kid not show up next time. So one thing he that that third party might offer this young person that like 
someone who works in a high school or is in education is and is being what do you say no nonsense about it uh one thing he gives them that he might not be able to find anywhere else is like sugary sweetness which might be total bs um unknowingly handicapping the kid you you take uh, capitalism and you inject it into amateur sport right and it corrupts it right and you know i don't mean to be anti-capitalist say, but oh, yeah. i mean money breeds you know what that's I mean? right greed and the seven deadly sins area you know you're moving into like and i'm sure there are a bunch of for-profit coaches who are doing a great job at sure. helping character and kids and work ethic and the things that sports supposed to to you know values the transfer um but innately, it's not. Uh, I mean, I, the guys I know that, you know, I watch some of these guys come through the high school who are like aides who are running for-profit AAU basketball or baseball totally. team type teams. These guys are bad dudes. Yeah. And they weren't in it for the right reason. I got into, I, not that I'm, I don't mean to sound self-righteous, but I got into coaching because wrestling saved my life. And my coaches are the only people in my life when I was 17 who hadn't given up on me other than my bl- blood, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know. Well, you get it then. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and I don't forget it. Now, obviously, we're sitting in this nice house. And so yeah. I, it's really easy for me to speak from kind of the, you know, this pedestal I, I'm able to stand on because I married well and all that. You know, if I was in a different scenario, maybe I'd be working to make money in coaching. But sure. um, I've been able to step aside and see this from a kind of an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and nothing against for-profit coaches because, again, I don't. You can't judge anybody, but right. I think the very concept of it is it's crushing wrestling in the city. I mean, just from my perspective now with Beat the Streets, um, there's no city wrestling anymore. Really? No. I mean, there just isn't. And uh, What was the downfall? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of symptoms. Sure. But one of them is um, there's no money in it. I mean, the the, a, the basketball teams are winning state, and um, but these guys have AU coaches and money around them football I, you know i don't know what football there's some football teams that are really good in the city yeah um, but i think that kind of revenue sports in general have more money backers and more people interested in helping them and you know it's just kind of becoming a world of haves and have nots if you don't have a mom in a minivan and 1200 bucks to pay for a season yeah you got nowhere to go you know and so now CPS is dropping, and nothing against CPS. I mean, these guys are doing whatever they can. I'm meeting these guys now, and I'm realizing they're up against the same fight we are. Sure. Um, but when you drop funding for athletics and, you know, this and that, and so you have wrestling rooms being taken from people and given to baseball and making into weight rooms for football, and um, now these guys are practicing in a hallway, and the kids are demoralized, and they don't want to practice, and the coach are demoralized, and so they're not going out and recruiting. And the next thing you know, you got six kids on your roster, and the school drops your program. Yeah. So um, wrestling is it's hurting in the city, and uh, I think part of it is that the whole this kind of shift in sport. Back in the day, you just you know it's just a different thing. It's just mm-hmm. much more accessible, easier to do. The money was there in terms of funding from at least public school institutions. So, and and it's funny that you bring that up because it feels like the overhead on wrestling has to be low. The equipment cost is it's like a singlet. It's like right. And I mean, for us, if you're running a program in the city now, um, we'll find a way to find you a wrestling mat. Yeah, you know what I mean. We'll, we'll find you a mat. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll buy totally. beat the streets. We'll buy your kids' shoes. Not mm. you know. We want kids to have some kind of skin in the game we, sure. I, i'm i'm a firm believer in that you know? sure but 
you know, at, at this point, and beat the streets hasn't been what it's going to be in the in the coming years. We're gonna we're gonna raise some dough. And we're gonna we're gonna have some more resources. So, um, but um, you know, the days of like, um, and maybe this is maybe I'm stretching here, but the days of like Muhammad Ali walking into the police athletic league and changing the world of sport forever as a result, that's not that doesn't exist anymore. That those club, there is no police athletic league in Chicago. There's no, they don't run a boxing gym. They don't run a wrestling gym. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that's what we can kind of recreate. Or you yeah. can, you want to be a neighborhood kid who just has access. You know, yeah. we're, we're here. Come join us. We're going to make this a home for you and a special place. And, and if you find your way in wrestling, you know, we can help it, you know, use it as a vehicle to, you know, improve life outcomes. Yeah. I love that. Well, I definitely want to know more about Beat the Streets before we get fully into that. Okay. Um, I want to hear about how wrestling saved your life in whatever way you feel comfortable talking about it. Well, yeah, I was just kind of a enabled upper middle class white kid. Who was, you know, Where are you from? River Forest. I mean, okay. don't get me wrong. My parents are both first generation Americans. They both worked two jobs my whole life. They're hardworking people. Neither of them graduated college. Um, they're They're... They're terrific people, and they were good parents. But uh, of the five kids, I was the kind of wayward guy. You know, I was, you know, one of those guys. I didn't want to be told what I was, you know, to do when I was three years old. I'm sure. Yeah. So, I've had my own ideas about the way th the world should run, and didn't work out very well for me when I was a teenager. And without the sport of wrestling and, and my coaches, you know, I I don't know where I would be. I probably wouldn't be dead, but I probably wouldn't have a college degree. Definitely, we definitely wouldn't be sitting in this dining room, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, what I the way I put it is every good thing that I have in my life, my work ethic, you know, be it a value or a character trait or um, a material possession or a relationship, almost everything um, can be pointed back to my time as a wrestler, the discipline I learned, and the things I had to fight to, to you know, for in wrestling and, and to overcome. Uh, emotionally or one way or another you know the, my college degrees my everything as a result of my connection to wrestling yeah. so um, I'm a firm believer in sport you know being a great vehicle and I know you guys are probably not wrestlers I know you're a football player but um, I believe wrestling's the greatest of all those vehicles mm. you know it's just, it's a special sport in that I tell people it's kind of like a half um, martial art half sport you know yeah. it's there's so much distant discipline involved if you're in a if you're a hard-working dedicated wrestler you're waking up you're eating differently than the rest of the teenagers mm -hmm. you're going for a morning run yeah. then you got to go through through all day school and while your friends are having pizza puffs and curly fries you're eating kale and chicken breast then you come and you do the hardest workout any person's ever imagined yeah. and then you got to get back on the treadmill because yeah. you got to cut three more pounds, you know what I mean, yeah. and then you got to go home, and you still got to finish your paper, and so when you're living that kind of monastic life, it's it's life altering. Yeah. So that's our kind of goal. So, and that's what changed my life. Yeah, you know, for so, sure. That I mean that that just the rigor of that schedule and yeah, and 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 you know that it's there's another piece to being. Um, vulnerable in wrestling that doesn't really exist when you're behind again no offense i, Say, love, it's I love football yeah. you know but when you you can hide behind your team in other sports you know you you it is you versus another human being with no equipment and if you are beaten you are beaten at the hands of another man or woman 
And that is the single most humiliating thing I can imagine huh. in sport. Sure. You know, and, uh, um, you know, give up a home run in baseball while your team didn't score. Even if, even as pitching, you know, even, I mean, even the, right. the most, you know, so, you know, tennis is, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. You think about the other one-on-one -on -one sports, none of them are another man or, you know, in my case was a man putting his hands on you and physically yeah. beating you in the submission. Direct, so, yeah. I mean, it is humiliating. It really yeah. is. So it's so humbling that you're forced to, if you're honest with it, and most ex-wrestlers are, uh, reflect in ways about your own emotions and your own humility that uh, I just don't think exists in other sports. So. I like that. So help me use the word transfer. Um, and I'm getting from this work ethic, uh, humility. Would you say those are the two main things that transfer from wrestling into other areas of your life? Or what else I think you discipline, you know, yeah. self-discipline and um, is big. I, you know, I, th I think, you know, I'm big on the de on delayed gratification. Absolutely. Particularly yeah. for kids, particularly in the days of uh, social media and everything mm -hmm. else. But it teaches that. I think most sports teach that. But that whole working toward a goal, setting goals and, and building yourself and, you know, so. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of attributes, but those are some of my Mental toughness is big. Your yeah. ability to deal with, you know, duress. You know, when you're cutting weight and you get a big tournament coming up and, and um you know, you just feel like garbage and you have no energy and, you know, cutting weight, I could probably equate to like having the flu real bad where you're, you know, you, you just are exhausted all the time. You know what I mean? You just yeah. don't feel like you have the energy to do anything. So when guys are leaning out on calories and last couple of days, you're, you're leaning out on water too. I know that doesn't sound good to people, but fasting is something mankind's been doing forever. So, um, you know, paleo man, when, sure. when days without eating, so I, I, I don't, I don't think it's bad for you. But to to an extreme level, it is. Yeah, but right, right. I think it's good for you, and this is why, because you have to still treat your loved ones well. You have to show up in class, and you still have to pay attention, and you have to go home, and you have to type a paper when it's the last thing you know, or study for a test that you know that you want to do. You just want to sit there and feel sorry for yourself, and so. That's tough stuff. I mean, that's not um, that's not easy. You know, you're forcing yourself into a position to to grow, and to, and to be uncomfortable and to be out of your you know on on you know out of your comfort zone. I'm so happy you just used that term because I literally, as you were saying that, just wrote it, like there's you train for growth, right? Strain like stress equals growth. Like you said, as long as you don't tip over, right? As long as you're staying within a balance, um, stress equals growth to a point. It's so funny that you said that because I think I'd like to hear a little bit about um, just your history, turning the program around, turning into such a national power. Uh, I'd like to know what the off season looked like in those programs. And maybe we'll just go right to that because I have a I have a supplemental story. I think you can tell a lot about a team based on how comfortable they are with just that very simple idea. Like you said, you have to go write a paper. You have to be good to your family. You have to be all those things in a de sort of a, a degraded state, physiological right, state, right, which right. is tough on your psychology at the same time. Right. Um, and if you can get good at doing that, when you're feeling fresh, you're going to be just at a, at a level that other people aren't, you know, they, they couldn't imagine, I would think. Um, when we see teams, you correct me if I'm wrong here, Alex, when we see teams who can only perform 
um, when there's there's options of cap, you know, we got we have bubbly. No offense to this, but we got sparkling water. We get you know in in the corner right, of the gym, right. and it's yeah. to, oh, they can perform when conditions are perfect, and they need that in their off season training. For example, I mentioned that strength and conditioning is a huge part of what we do. If the conditions need to be perfect in order for them to perform, um, this high caliber or high potential athlete is probably not going very far. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Um, anyway, let's, let's use that as a segue to talk about, um, the incredible turnaround, Matt Casella, who, um, got us in touch, uh, mentioned that, that OPRF, when they were battling LT, they were kind of a middle of the pack team, I think is, and correct me on if my history is wrong before we were bad. Yeah. Uh, okay. My first couple <laughs> of years, we were really, really bad. Yeah. Um, Niall Collins, the head coach before me left me a really good team. Yeah. So we weren't going to be bad, whether he was head coach or I was in that last. I mean, he kind of set me up. Right. And we worked together to kind of start building the program. And then I kind of took it from there mm-hmm. with, with his son and a couple other oh, guys. Wow. So yeah. Very cool. I think we did what good coaches do. I think we just yeah. um, did it harder and, and more. Yeah. What, I think did, we what were, does that look like? Yeah. I think we were really consistent. Back then – um, training year round was not, um, you know, it, um, it wasn't as, as prevalent as it is now. Yeah. So getting guys into training year round, you know, you, how do you take wrestlers that start as freshmen and catch them up to guys that have been wrestling since they were eight years old? Mm-hmm. And the way is you wrestle two or three seasons throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you come back as a second year wrestler really like a third or fourth year wrestler if you right. wrestled 50, 80 off-season matches. So that was it, which kind of, and it kind of, it's kind of um, ironic because the part about that whole, the way sport is going thing is that I probably was guilty of sure. doing my own part in that. Yeah. I, you know, I think in high school, I think it's okay to specialize. I think kids probably should specialize if they want to be good. Right. There's very few guys that could be two or three sport athletes and be really good at them. Right. But, um, because everybody else is specialized sure. nowadays, but right, it depends. It, it depends what level you want to get to, also. Right. Right. And I really never had a hard time sharing athletes as long as they were committed to the sport of wrestling. You know, so we had a lot of really good foot guys that played football. Like yeah. A lot of partnerships with football that were mutually beneficial. Sure. Um, you know, I don't. I. It's hard to talk about. I don't much want to brag about I would, things listen, but uh can we give you full clearance just for the just for the sake of uh the listenership like what what's some of the stuff that you're most proud of because because it, it you to know see it, it it turn into a result like that is the ultimate kind of stamp of approval on the process so i think uh you know i think the, you build culture first and i think that those first couple teams were really lucky we had really good kids that were 100 percent bought in that loved the idea of husky style wrestling and what it meant to be an old park wrestler and and I sold it nonstop. I mean, yeah. I was like a, you know, traveling salesman. I mean, I just talked about it with everybody. It was all, and we had a great group of coaches that were all in year round. I mean, we were driving kids to Indiana, wherever we had to go to find tournaments yeah. and um, competitions. And I was, you know, I ran, I, I probably was the first guy to run. Uh, no, that's not true. I mean, I stole the idea, but I was the first guy to run a high-end wrestling club Um that just let anybody in, mm-hmm. you know, those clubs now are, you know, you have to pay a lot of money to belong to them. So sure. I, I started it by just inviting the teams that were better than us. Hey, why don't you come over here? 
you know, maybe you'll benefit from me, my coaching a little bit and my guys will benefit from you whipping on them. Mm-hmm. So we had Notre Dame when they were way, way better than us. We had Proviso East when they were way better than us. We had some LT guys come. You know, mm-hmm. so we had some guys from, from all over come in and kind of beat up our guys and we get them all together and let's get better together. And so we started this offseason thing and that was huge. Um, I think Ellis Coleman, who's a 20-year-old Olympian in 2012 um, from Oak Park, wow. um, his he was basically a first year rest second wrestler in eighth grade, you know. So he didn't wasn't very experienced, but he wrestled 122 matches in between his freshman and sophomore year in high school, hmm. and most of those were national level matches. And a lot I shouldn't say most, but probably half of them were. So I mean, he wrestled every weekend, all weekend, sometimes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we were in Vegas and we traveled all over the country, and that's how Ellis got good. Yeah, um, he doesn't make the Olympic team, you know, if he's just you know so. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of culture building, program building, relationship building. And I think if your X's and O's are good, I'm a pretty good technician. I was a decent Mm -hmm. wrestler. I study the sport a lot. Um, so I think the teaching aspect is kind of standard. If you're, if you're at a high level of, of instruction and you can run a good wrestling room, the rest of it comes down to relationships and what your culture is like. Yeah. And I didn't really get that. I just kind of came to, just kind of came to me naturally. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, now you study and you read all right. the stuff about you know. This, but in two thousand and three, you know, right. two thousand four, at least for me, I was young and naive, and um, I was reading books on politics. That, but you know, now you now you read books about mindset and yeah, you, know, you, carry, you know, grit and all that stuff. But not you know, so but th- that stuff just kind of came naturally to me. Yeah. So the whole culture thing and you know, the concept of the Husky wrestling family came about. But I look back and, man, were we lucky with the Coleman's just happened. Their mom just happened to get, this is Ellis Coleman, the Olympian, and his brother, who was a state finalist. Yeah. Um, they just happened to get Section 8 housing on the Oak Park side of Austin Boulevard. You know, she wanted to yeah. move to, you know, and she got lucky and won the, the Section 8 lottery or whatever it was. And then I met a guy named Tom Johnson who started the Husky wrestling family non-for-profit and raised us 10 g's a year for like 10 years wow and he's uh you know, like a life idol of mine but you know you just run into all these people and they say what you're doing is pretty exciting and and they want to get on board and so you know without those people none of this stuff really hit, you know you never really hear about oak park wrestling so i think it's more than just uh what i did you know there's a whole group of people that were involved Totally. Dedicated coaches and parents and athletes. And um, yeah, I think it's everything starts with culture. I think everything, and I think culture starts with relationships. And uh, we were able to build really, I mean, when you're with a kid year round, mm-hmm. you know, and particularly these kids who are going through difficult times as teenagers, and, um, you know, you, you're hearing the, the, their problems and you're going through this stuff with them, kid will run through a wall for you. That's right. You know, after that. Yeah. So you, I mean, we, I think that relationship part, and I think in the wrestling room and around wrestling, things have been harsh, mm-hmm. and 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 expectations are through the roof, and we never compromise them. Your shoes better be tied at three thirty, and if they weren't, you know, I'm not, you know, so and that I got soft when I got older, so but when I was young, I was militant about doing things. The, the phrase that we use all the time are doing things the right way, yeah. and that just meant hold yourself to the highest standard possible. 
And so when you can do that and you have a relationship with young men um, that is one of trusting and bonding and, uh, you know, family-like, then you can tell the kid he's got to run his head through the wall and they'll do it. So, Yeah, first of all, I think it's totally right, the relationship part. And if you have a knack for it, fantastic. You don't even necessarily, you don't have to know what you're doing at first. If that's just a gift, you relating to people, I think that's, exceptional but in order to give that strategy to others you got to be able to name it it sounds like you have right so uh, you know yeah once you once, well once you recognize how important that is right you uh, can now talk to other coaches about development of culture is yes essential. so i do a lot of that i've done yeah. a lot of that right. coaches clinics and leadership I'm, t- I'm actually going down to going up to wisconsin in august to give it like a corporate leadership talk leading leaders love that culture and the thing i the, when i started doing this i thought it was uh I thought I was kind of an imposter. This isn't going to work out, but it's crazy. None of these guys have ever read the book. They don't know who Angela Duckworth is. Right. So they don't, right. you know what I mean? They don't study this stuff. They're trying to make the next sale and take care of their family. Right. So it's appropriate. Yeah. And uh, so if you've got a clear message. Um, yeah. No question. And I'm not, I'm not as organized a thinker as probably you are. So. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not. So I've got a long ways to go, but. Um, the guys that can really kind of, I, I don't like the guys that really put it into this neat system, mm-hmm. you know, because then you're kind of taking away the X factors and the X factor is love, trust, you know, for sure. So things that really matter in, in getting the most out of a human being as a coach. We can talk off the air about like potentially where this could go. We are, we're going to be hosting some uh, clinics in the Chicago land area. We call them either coach for kindness clinics or beyond strength clinics, essentially like, doing the other stuff, the intangibles. Uh, but we have a method that we refer to frequently. It's called the anchor and tether method. Anchor and, and anchor tether? Anchor and tether. Yeah. So like um, these are our standards. These are our anchors. And the amount of rope you let out is highly dependent. So like you as someone who's well-versed and, and highly experienced in the relationship part, um, we might say positive relationships with kids is an anchor. And how that looks, we let the rope out. We just let you go essentially. Whereas a new novice coach, we might have to pull somebody back and say, ah, we can't really talk like that to a kid or whatever it might be, right? right? The, the, the rope's a little shorter, but that allows us to be, like you said, you don't want to be too rigid. You don't want to say like, this is the way it must be. But you, I think you can say, these are the anchors to our mission and our philosophy. And then, then you allow a varying degree of ownership and agency. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, it's a way to, it's a nice to organize thought, but, but allow for flexibility which i think is very cool um i want to hear more about your career as a wrestler if you don't mind and brag away please i you know what man i this is i don't want to sound um i don't know how this sounds so i worry about how it sounds sometimes but i i was i was very lucky i'm very grateful for my time i'm very grateful for my coaches um i feel i've spent the last 20 years, i am come to grips with the fact that I was kind of a failure at wrestling. I was a D1 All-American, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but I, was a fr- I was a freshman All-American. Okay, only a wrestler would say that, by the way. I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I never placed again in the NCAA tournament. And okay. the reason is I stopped being disciplined. I started mm. partying again. I, st- I was incredibly narcissistic and s- scared to death that I was going to lose a wrestling match. And, and... I was scared to death to put everything I had into competition or into wrestling because because if I lost, it would turn out I wasn't the most righteous dude on earth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I do have flaws. Maybe I am a flawed human. And so my sports psychology was so bad and I was so contrived mm-hmm. 
when I was 21, 22 years old that it was that I was it was crippling. I had some bad luck, I had some injuries, you know, and some other stuff. And uh, but I, I, uh, I have a lot of regrets about my my career. Which school I, was it? Indiana University. Yeah. And I had everything set up. I, I was I had the physical talent to be an NCAA champion. I had the partner and anybody who was, I, you know, that's, I don't mean to brag. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's actually probably embarrassing, you know, because I came so far from reaching my full potential. But, um, I, you know, anybody that I wrestled with will tell you the same. And, you know, so I had the physical traits. I had technical, you know, I picked up technique well. You know what I mean? I was a, I was a great practice from wrestler. I just couldn't get it together. Yeah. Just so. As a freshman, I went into the NCAA tournament unseated. I was pissed I was unseated because I thought I should have been. You know what I mean? So I had something sure. to prove and I had nothing to protect. And then I was all of a sudden, I'm an All-American. Everybody's talking about, you're going to win the NCAAs. You know, this is, you'll come back. You'll be, I think I was the number three ranked guy in the country the following year mm. coming in. I think I might have got as high as two at some point. That was, that was like horrible for me. It was like the worst thing. You know, I didn't recognize it at the time, but I would look at the rankings. This is before the age of the internet. I'd look at the rankings in the in the magazine, and I would. It, it was just I. And this horrible feeling came over me. Just fear, you know, just butterflies, and oh my gosh, what if I'm not that good? Yeah. And I could have been, but I imagine I faced what a lot of people face in wrestling, and that was the truth. You know, <laughs> yeah. I was a jerk, and I was self centered, and I did, was not courageous enough to put things on the line, and. Uh, you know, I, my career paid the price. So later in life, that that humility part, um, that part, my failure in wrestling ended up driving um, some serious, you know, in-depth um, mining of myself and my personality and how I am and how I treat people and, and how I perceive myself. And I worked very hard on... Um, learning humility and, and I'm not very good at it yet, you know, so, uh, you know, hubris is something I, I'm going to fight my whole life, I'm sure. So, but I at least was able to identify it and it was because of the sport of wrestling. So it gave me this incredible gift, these failures in wrestling. And uh, it's been a powerful force in my life since as a coach and as, you know, I think had I achieved everything I should have achieved, maybe it would have been harder to relate to some of these kids who are fighting in what sports psychology and difficult things and emotional times and you know, I see this kid that's an emotional basket case, and I don't say, well, I might say once in a while in my head, you know, he's a whip. But <laughs> I can often relate to the kid sure. and say, you know, I, I can see myself in that young man, or I can see this guy, you know, he reminds me a lot of this guy that we used to coach, and this is how we dealt with that. This was our pitfall here, and this is what we were good with. So um, that kind of forced self-reflection in wrestling was really big for me. So that's yeah. my career. I, I, I was a state champion and All-American. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to say that, and I yeah. feel very lucky to have had those opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but I left a lot on the table. That's fair. I, and I think uh, that feels like an accurate assessment then, right? Judge, judgment-free, accurate assessment. Tons of potential. And it sounds like when you worked, the potential led to all-state, you right. know, all-American right. type right. stuff. Right. But, I mean unfulfilled potential is a story as old as right. humankind. So that I, I, I would like to think that that probably has made you the coach that you've become, right? If you just went in there and just blew the roof off everything and it was not handed to you, but if you're, I, I wonder if you'd be able to uh, relate to as many kids as, as you right. are and now. For somebody, for me, you know, Cal Sanderson is an incredible wrestler and now he's mm -hmm. an incredible coach. He's just a 
superior human to me. You know what I mean? It's hard <laughs> that, to relate that to that's, kids. Yeah, like, that's, hey, that's, just that's be better than everybody else. That's just, else. I mean, he's like, you know, yeah, he's like yeah, the yeah. next coming. So, um, but, but you know, he clearly has a way with kids, whether mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, 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 so I think to each their own, you kind of find your way. But this was, a, it was an important thing in my, yeah, in, in my step to becoming a good coach. How did your uh, teammates and maybe even college coach react to that? A, a young guy, a big time recruit with promise, and things maybe kind of went awry somewhere along the way. Um, I wasn't a very big recruit, but okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> decent. You know, well, but. for those who don't know, rest, Big Ten wrestling is about as serious as it gets. Yes, and I was, yeah. and I, I mean, I, you know, when I wrestled, there was like five freshman All Americans in the history of the NCAA wrestling. Now it's yeah. pretty common. So, but it was like, you know, I think I was, I didn't really realize this at the time, but I think they probably saw me as, you know, a potential guy that could be, yeah. you know, really big player for them for years. And I kind of, I don't know, my relationship with my college coach was not good when I graduated. Really? Um, I think that was probably on both of us. And uh, um, for my part, I was a jerk. I, I, I was not good for the culture of the team. I was not. You know, I'm a kind of a natural leader, so I was socially, I was probably kind of a leader, and I probably led a lot of guys down the wrong path. And yeah. had I been the right type of athlete and leader, our team would have benefited for sure. Yeah. So I think my coach kind of recognized that, rightly so. Yeah, fair enough. Probably was not real happy with me. Fair. How about in high school? For a lot of reasons. Uh, my senior year, I did right. Yeah. The other three years, I was. Yeah. Well, you're figuring, you're finding the path. Yeah, I think I, I think I did right by my team and my coaches my senior year. Good. I uh, I really dedicated myself to being a good leader. I wasn't a great leader, but I was better, probably better than a lot better than the previous year. So, yeah. Um, I won. I had a very tumultuous relationship with with several of my coaches until my senior year, and then hmm. because I did things, I think mostly the right way. Right. They were. We were all besties at the end so. there you go is there a is there a coach along the way that kind of stands out as someone who helped model uh behavior or mold your career um larry montagno was one of my high school coaches great man was wonderful to me our head coach was a guy named norm parker who's a big 10 champ in iowa uh he's awesome great 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 human being i'm still very close to both those men uh, and the other one was niall collins who i ended up coming back and coaching right. for was like my second father and and uh you know he's kind of the guy i go to when i need to be told uh mean things to set my life straight you know either him or my old man so and 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 niall handed me this great program that was really healthy and in great shape and uh and now his son paul collins who's you know kind of like a brother to me is is the head coach now so he coached for me and then took over how long were you in the head coaching position um Fall of 2004 till I think tw- the end of 2014. So I think yeah, 10 about years. About 10 years? 2014, 2015. I don't know. And how long? So you accepted a healthy program. It went down a little bit. Is that right? No. Or was that that's when you were, you said that's when we you were We were really at. bad a couple years before. Before. Gotcha. My gotcha. first couple years as an assistant, really bad. Yeah. Yes. So, so there was some real lean years there. Good kids. But yeah. they had no wrestling experience. They hadn't, you know, they weren't committed in the offseason, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So, but Niall ran a really good wrestling program. Yeah. He taught me how to fundraise. He taught me that you, you know, you don't go home until the last kids 
out the door. It, you know, you give kids rides, homes, but back in the day, you could put kids in your car. Yeah. You know what I mean? He went to people's, he went to wakes, he sat down in living rooms. I mean, he did everything right. Yeah. And he modeled these incredible behaviors for me as a coach that just were above and beyond. He took kids into his home. I mean, you know, it was, it was, he, he, guy worked 350 days a year on wrestling. Right. So I, we were set up. We just needed the athletes. And that last group that he coached, we won a regional. We upset Fenwick, who had been crushing us for years at the regional. And then um, that was the team. They were coming. Most of those guys came back, and that was my first team. So my first team was pretty good. They were yeah. 20th in the state or something. Good yeah. team. And how did it advance, for those who don't know, from that year on? Um we were state champions, so that was 2004, 2005. We were state champions four years later. Wow, that's incredible. It was fun. It was yeah. it was awesome. I was you you know you look back, you don't realize, you know, I sat down with the coaches and I said five years till we win state. Here's what we're gonna do, and we built out a you know what now would be called a strategic plan. There it is. But we basically just said, I said, here's the vision. Yeah. Everything we do involves us moving forward toward this vision. We went with this is what we're going to do. And then we won state and we sat down. And I said, how long till we win the national championship? And I said, here's what we need to do. So we kind of mapped it out. And five years later, we were number one team in the country, five or six years. So it's incredible. Pretty cool. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so you've accomplished things that some people worked their entire career for. Um, how do you translate that? that process of success, the vision, all this, the strategic planning, to the relationships, how do you translate that um, into what you're doing now? With Beat the Streets. With Beat the Streets. And, and maybe give us a little background as to what exactly it is and then uh, all the great work that you're doing. So Beat the Streets, I, like I said earlier, the best way, I'm, I'm trying to find the best way to succinctly tell somebody who's never, it's, we do all things wrestling in the city. Mm -hmm. Coaches education, coaches retention. We're we're I mean, we own twenty wrestling mats that are being used throughout the city. You know, we do I mean, we provide shoes, we do programming, you know, so we do all these things. The best way I can say it is we are trying to help young people change the outcome of their lives through sport. Yeah. Love it. And 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 through what we believe is the greatest vehicle in sport, and that's wrestling. You know, and, and again, we don't change lives; we provide opportunity. That's right. And the, the goal is to get young people on the map, get them to identify themselves as wrestlers, and then let wrestling do all those wonderful things. We are a youth sports development organization, so we are starting a mentoring program. We're piloting a mentoring program. We're doing more than just wrestling. Sure. That said, I can't. I can't overestimate how important the sport of wrestling is in former wrestlers lives so in order to get grants and to do all these things that we want to do and grow as an organization one yeah. of you know is is we need to be a youth development organization but right now we're very wrestling centered mm -hmm. and we believe in the power of the sport of wrestling we believe in wrestling coaches and the and the power of great mentors and this kind of visceral relationship that's created through wrestling and how powerful it can be um, and all the things I talked about in the sport of wrestling. But we're doing a bunch of other stuff. So we're, we're starting a summer program that involves a half a day of, of wrestling and a half a day of enrichment, computer programming, spoken word, hmm. you know. Sure. Not academics. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to improve math skills. We want to help enrich people's lives. Sure. Right? So 
so it's we're trying to become more than just a wrestling club, you know, or, or we're not just a wrestling club. We're trying to become known for more than just that. You know, yeah. we're going to put on a huge coaches clinic this fall. Maybe we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, we're going to bring in outside coaches. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finalize a location right now. Uh, we're trying to do it in the city. It's not easy to, to right. find space and, right. and reasonable prices for things. Um, but if we can do it in the city, we're going to bring a couple hundred coaches into the city and we're going to we're going to have a monster coaches clinic so yeah. you know the coaches education piece we're doing all this stuff but yeah. basically it all revolves around helping young people you know shape their lives in, in a positive manner and, ch and maybe change the course of their lives you know for some of these at-risk kids absolutely so. and how long have you been in that role Pretty i've been recently. involved yeah i've been involved with the organization for almost a year now um it'll be a year in august maybe a year in september and I've been the ex official executive director since March. Fantastic. That's, that's amazing. Are, you feel like it's about that time? Yes, I like it's about that time. So Coach Nadalna has something we can like around. If you're comfortable with this, just quick hitters. Yeah. Comfortable sure. with everything. Sure. You got this. What is your fondest high school sports memory? Winning the state championship. What was your first job? I was a delivery, pizza delivery guy. My first real job. What was your first concert you ever went to? Ooh, that's interesting. Maybe the Allman Brothers. Mm. Favorite Allman Brothers song? Oh, I don't think I have one. Whipping Post, maybe. Live, Fillmore, that whole album. Favorite book or movie unrelated to your field? Book. We'll do book and movie. I always say or, but it doesn't make any sense. So book and My movie. favorite movie unrelated to the, to the Raging Bull. Is that unrelated? Does that count? It feels like it's in the same sphere, <laughs> but we'll allow it. We'll <laughs> That's all with those. Um, a fish called Wanda. Okay. Uh, favorite book. I've got a lot of favorite books. Um, I don't think I have one. One that comes to mind that is unrelated but kind of related. That I think is good maybe for your podcast. Okay. Is, is uh, something called, um, uh, it's called, Elliot Arnold, it's called Blood Brothers, and it's hard to find. It's an incredible book written in the, in the 40s about, it is the ultimate story of manly friendship and manhood hmm. and the humility that goes along with that. And it's about the relationship between Cochise, the great Apache warlord, uh, a warlord, I should say, a, a chief, Indian chief, and um, the white guy that was kind of trying to steward um, peace with them. And uh, really interesting, really interesting historical novel. My, my good buddy, Eric Pitts, gave it to me, wrestling coach out in California. What is one habit you have that you, believes makes you, that you believe makes you more successful? Neurosis. Is that a habit? <laughs> um, <laughs> a habit that makes you, I don't know, habit, are habits, are like habits successful? I have a lot of bad habits. Um, um, how about that self-critique? I'm hard on myself. And uh, I learned that from my old man. He's hard on himself. So um, that can be good and bad. But it's right. definitely good when you're, when you're trying to build yourself in your profession. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of one of those nothing's ever good enough guy. What advice do you have uh, for somebody that is about to embark on a similar journey? You have to be an optimist. 
nine, sports failure rate is 80, 90% when you're a coach. You're, you're, you're going to invest in a lot of kids um, that are going to fail you in a lot of ways, that are going to let you down in a lot of ways. And if you take, if you're not tough enough to handle that, either, it, you know, I took everyone personally, but in that sense, I'm not tough in very many ways. In that sense, I can always rebound and find the next kid to put my faith in. And um, um, that kind of optimism, seeing the best in people and, and, and fighting for the best in people, uh, not losing that, I think, is the single biggest um, anecdote to burnout. I think people burn out because because you put all this time in and you just, the reward is, you know, you have to look for the reward. You have to find the one kid of the 20 whose life is, the course of his life has changed. And when you get older and you're as old as I am and you've been coaching as long as I am, you get a lot of kids who quit your team who really you felt like you failed or they or they let you down or both um, to come back and say, hey, this is, you know, my two years at the program was life altering for me and this is why. And so now you hear those stories and you realize, but you don't hear that when you're, when I was 25 years old, it would have been real easy just to go out with my buddies, have a few beers, not get up and go to a tournament on Saturday in the off season. Um, you know, so, but I had whatever, you know, maybe it was, I, maybe I learned it from Niall Collins. Maybe it's innate. I don't know. Niall was very much like that, but I think that optimistic view of how things are going to turn out and not being able to get crushed by those, I don't know. Is that descript enough? Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, okay. love that. Thank you so much. End of lightning round. Okay. That wasn't so lightning of an answer. Not very good at... Uh, that was succinct enough. Sometimes okay. succinct dumbs it down too much. I thought that was a good answer. It was the right answer. Actually, didn't you have that in your nose? Yeah. That was the answer we were looking for. Nailed it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. All right. Um, that's pretty much all we have for you. Okay. Um, we'd love to continue the conversation in, in maybe different ways. You're always invited back on the podcast. Um, okay. Hopefully, but, uh, I, hopefully we did all right. Uh, I thought, what do you think? One out of 10. 10? 10. Tech fall. You tech fall the podcast. Is that a face up there? No, but we really do appreciate it. We appreciate how much you give back, and there's no question. One of the reasons that we like interacting with coaches like yourself so much is is we call it the ripple effect. Like you talk about that one or the you affect one or two kids out of twenty. Well, that kid's gonna go on to affect someone in some possible right. So the ripple effect of of a really legit lifelong coach is incalculable. So thanks for all you do. I hope you keep doing it, man. All right. Thank you, guys. This episode brought to you by Hand Armor Chalk, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting. They are also the official sponsor of the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association, a partner organization overseen by the Good Athlete Project. We would not support a product we didn't believe in. Check them out at Hand Armor Chalk on Twitter and Instagram.